First talk, we want to think about, get ready, church discipline. I think there's going to be some repetition in our talks, but we think that's good and useful. So um, let me pray again, and then we'll jump in on this one. Lord, we thank you so much that you desire us to be holy like you. We confess that we are not holy as we should be. We thank you for any reflection of your character that is in our lives, and we pray for more. And we pray you'd use the community of people in our local church that loves you and loves your word and loves us to help us to be more like you. Make us more humble before your word and before each other, we pray. Lord, we pray specifically and especially for those who are in authority here, pastors and elders, help us to understand your word. Help us not to abuse authority. Help us not to beat sheep. Help us to value the sheep for whom Christ died. Help us to remember it's your flock and we're just tending it temporarily. Lord, work in our hearts, work in the churches of everybody here. Get glory to yourself through these messages, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with this simple fact. Jesus Christ founded the church. The church was not the idea of some preacher's union who needed jobs. Jesus Christ founded the church. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. You're very familiar with it, but we need to start here. Matthew 16. Peter and the rest of the disciples have followed Jesus up north. They're in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? There in Matthew 16, verse 13. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my, and then he would have said kahel, or some Aramaic equivalent. The Greek, uh, Matthew writes down ecclesia, Ecclesia, in English we say church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. When Jesus mentioned his church there, he didn't use a word that evoked in people's minds a building. When he said, my church, the disciples would, have not, would not have thought, you are going to build a glorious cathedral. They wouldn't have thought you are going to build the world's fanciest synagogue. They wouldn't have thought you are going to build a gigantic building. When he said that word in Aramaic, he was using a word that would have been used for non-religious assemblies. This would be a kahel, a, an ecclesia. In Acts 18, when they're rioting in Ephesus, and they come to the amphitheater, that's described by Luke as an ecclesia, it's an assembly. But Jesus took that word that just generally means gathering together, congregating, 
and he gave it a special meaning about his congregation, those who would gather around the Messiah. The church then became the basic description for those for whom Christ died when Paul is talking in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. He's very clear in Acts 20, 28, he tells them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. That's extraordinary image that God bought the church with his own blood. The church is his idea. It's the basic unit of evangelism. So when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and he tells them to go out and tell all nations uh, the truth about him, he's very clear in this commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, how did the disciples hear that command? Well, we know from the book of Acts, they planted churches. They spread out and planted. They didn't just individually share the gospel in the line at the store. They planted churches. They organized units of people who lived in a place to stay and live out the Christian life with each other together. So the church is the basic unit of evangelism in the New Testament. It's also the basic unit then of discipleship. This is the context in which we are taught to obey everything Jesus commanded, in which we mature. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, you see this so clearly, the corporate nature of Christian discipleship. Hebrews chapter 10, he says in verse, 20, in verse 19, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Friends, is that what you're thinking about when you go to church on Sunday? Are you thinking about whether or not you're going to like the music? Or are you thinking about how you can spur others there on to love and good deeds? Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We can go to so many passages in the New Testament which reflect this corporate reality of our discipleship. It's in that corporate context of discipleship, that church discipline comes in. You go back to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 18, and we'll think about this a little bit more uh, later. Matthew chapter 18. In this wonderful passage on forgiveness and reconciliation, Jesus specifically teaches his followers Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two or three of you on earth agree, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So there in verse 17, Jesus taught his disciples that if one of their number has sinned and refuses to repent, the church should treat him as if he were, he says here, a pagan or a tax collector. And this exclusion of a member from the membership in the church is what's often meant popularly when somebody says just church discipline. They mean just that very last stage of corrective discipline. Now, in in fact, that kind of exclusion or excommunication, that is don't come to communion, don't come to the Lord's Supper, that exclusion or excommunication is only because those who repent of their sins are welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper, but only those who repent of their sins. And this is the final stage of one kind of church discipline, of corrective church discipline. Again, in the fullest sense, church discipline is the discipling a church does. It refers to all the ways a local church teaches its members. So formative discipline is the positive direct teaching where we're setting out biblical truth. It's your sermon. It's the Sunday school classes. It's the mentoring. Corrective discipline would include somebody contradicting or challenging or confronting or rebuking. So here in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples what to do if somebody sins against them. It's it's really part of love. It's part of not leaving someone in their sins. Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Flattery is unloving, but accurate rebuke is a treasure to be sought. Danny and I were talking yesterday about some places in the Christian life, the Christian world, where facts are treated as insults because they're just not used to being spoken to directly, simply, without flattery. Friends, our churches should not be like that. Our churches should be marked by genuine concern and care and love. And part of that means we want people to repent of their sins. And if not, if they don't repent, even when the church has spoken to them, as we see here in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, so the church has spoken, if they won't, then such a person is to be excommunicated or disciplined, to use the popular slang way to talk about it. This kind of discipline is often misunderstood. It doesn't mean the person's no longer loved. All of the pain and trauma surrounding such an action is undertaken in part for the good of the one who's in sin. Those of you who are pastors and elders know there's seldom work that's more difficult and you only undertake it because you love the person. You would love for the situation just to go away. But because you love them, you can't do that. It is to be done in love. Such discipline normally doesn't mean that that, kind of per- that that person is not welcome to attend church where you are. Really, in our church, almost every time we've excommunicated them, the main thing we want them to do is to attend church regularly. We would like them to come here. We would like them to hear God's Word. Except in, in rare cases, there is nowhere that the congregation would rather the sinner be 
than continuing to be regularly under the preaching of God's Word. In fact, it, it is by such continued attendance that the sinner is confronted by Scripture and his life is observed by the community. And we don't assume that discipline's permanent. The reason we do the discipline is so it will end. We want to see that end. One desired end is the repentance of the sinner. So in one of our messages later, we're going to be thinking about 2 Corinthians, where Paul actually rebukes the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 for not recognizing the repentance and readmitting into membership one of their own members whom they had disciplined for sin. Friends, when, when we discipline someone in this sense, when we excommunicate them, it's not meant to be an infallible statement of the eternal state of the person disciplined. No, it's a fallible but very serious expression of warning about an evident lack of regeneration despite their claims to be born again. They are typified more by what Paul calls in Galatians the works of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the practice of this discipline, even, even to the point of excommunication, is important for a number of reasons. Of course, the sinner should be confronted and made aware of his sin, like we'll be thinking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. By such action, hypocrites may be revealed both to themselves, they may be self-deceived, so that they might repent, and to the church, so that the church can distinguish between the sheep and the wolves in sheep's clothing. We may on a panel talk about Matthew chapter 7. Consider that some more. This is good for the health of the congregation as a whole, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5. It's helpful to teach younger Christians what it means to be a mature Christian. It presents warnings about sin. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. So here's Paul writing to a young pastor. It's not surprising this topic comes up. And he says in chapter 5, he's talking to them about serving as an elder. He's very clear, verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Why would Paul say that? Because it is the very nature of an elder's, of a pastor's work, to stir up opposition by sinners. So we're, we're, you will face a lot of accusations as a pastor. If you, if you and your family can't take that, and I mean that in a holy, humble way. You need to not be in the ministry. It is a given part of it. But he keeps going. Those who, who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. Well, there's a lot we could talk about from that. What level of sin are we talking about? Are we talking about unrepentant sin? But the point that I want to bring is simply that Paul has in view the others taking warning. Part of what a right use of church discipline does is teach the church, it warns the church, it helps the church as a whole to be healthy. It helps younger Christians see what a truly mature Christian is. It presents to the world too outside a clarifying picture of what it means to be a Christian. And ultimately the practice of church discipline is important as a part of glorifying God because it's a part of God's reflecting His character accurately to His creation in a fallen world like ours. You look over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Friends, our God is a God of mercy and of holiness, and to neglect either aspect of his character is to distort his image 
and lie about him. So friends, our churches should not lie about God's mercy. And our churches should not lie about God's holiness. So in all these ways, the practice of church discipline, if rightly understood in practice, is important, both for the individual Christian and for the congregation. Let me, that, so that's sort of what is church discipline. If I've got three simple points in this sort of intro talk for the conference, that's number one, what is church discipline? This is number two, why you shouldn't practice it. Why you should not practice church discipline. The first thing I often tell pastors when they discover church discipline is in the Bible is I say, don't do it, at, at least not yet. Let me just explain why I say that. Let's think about what happens in the process of discovery. When, when pastors first hear of church discipline, they often think the idea is ridiculous. They think it's unloving, it's counter-evangelistic, it's weird, it's controlling, it's legalistic, it's judgmental, it certainly seems unworkable. They even sometimes wonder, is this even legal? You know. And then, you know, when nobody's looking, they open their Bible. You know, and they're, they're not on one of the famous passages. They're just, you know, humming along in their quiet time. Maybe they're in, you know, just corners of the New Testament. Let's say they're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and they're just kind of innocently reading along. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. What? That's in the Bible? Sometimes you just begin to notice things once somebody's brought a topic up. Or they say, maybe they say, ah, okay, I'm, I, that just feels legalistic. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read some Galatians, clean my soul out. You know, let's just, <laughs> I'm just going to go to the fruit of the Spirit. All right, that always encourages me. Okay, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus with its passion, or have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. What does he mean caught in a sin and restore him? You just begin to notice it every place. Or that, you know, you could go to one of those classic texts like 1 Corinthians 5. They consider the Old Testament background of excommunication. They recall that God has always purposed for his people to picture his own holiness. You can go Deuteronomy 17, Leviticus 19, Isaiah 52. That passage I just read from 1 Peter 1 quotes the Old Testament on this. Anyway, then somehow they turn to Jesus' own teaching and they discover that that same chapter which so famously says, judge not lest ye be judged, Matthew 7, 1. Jesus in that very chapter warns the disciples to be on their guard against false prophets and against those who claim to follow him but do not obey his word. So they're called to make discernments between two folks who are claiming to follow Jesus and one obeys Jesus' word and one doesn't. They both claim to. And then finally Matthew 18 comes up where Jesus instructs his followers to exclude the unrepentant sinner. The passage we just read and they begin to wonder, okay, maybe churches should practice church discipline. And what finally sends this otherwise nice, normal, well-adjusted, previously popular pastor over the edge 
is the discovery that some churches do, in fact, practice church discipline. You know, not strange, maladjusted churches, you know, with 17 people on homecoming Sunday, but like happy, growing, large, evangelistic, grace-oriented churches like John MacArthur's church in Sun Valley, California, or 10th Presbyterian Church up in Philadelphia, or First Baptist Church over in Durham, or the Village Church with Matt Chandler near Dallas. And, and now these pastors are in trouble and, and they, they realize they need to be obedient and they feel compelled now by this biblical picture of a holy, loving, united church that reflects the one holy, loving God and they understand their failure to practice church discipline actually hurts their church and it hurts their witness to the world. And, and it's at this point that a sullen resolve often seems to set in. I will lead this congregation to this biblical and be biblical at this point if it is the last thing I do. And often it is. (laughs) So, into the peaceful, well-meaning life of an innocent Mount Sinai Baptist church, a Bible-believing congregation, the lightning bolt of church discipline strikes. Maybe in a sermon, maybe a conversation between the pastor and a deacon. Uh, It may be a hastily arranged motion at a members meeting, but, but somewhere it hits, usually accompanied by great earnestness and a torrent of scriptural citations, usually of the passages I just referred to, and then the sincere action is taken, and the response comes misunderstanding and hurt feelings and counter charges are made about the way things were done and then sin is attacked and sin is defended and names are called and acrimony abounds and the symphony of the local congregation transposes into a cacophony of argument and accusations and people cry out, where will this stop? And so you think you're perfect? So friends, what's a pastor to do? Well, my advice is Don't get yourself into this situation in the first place. Once you've discovered that church discipline is biblical, don't do it. At least hold off practicing it for a little while. As I say, church discipline is both formative and corrective. The formative you're doing all the time. Now, maybe you think, Mark, are are you telling us to disobey the Bible? Are you instructing us to do that? Well, in fact, I'm not. Uh, I'm trying to help you to do what Jesus instructed his disciples to do in Luke 14, where he encouraged them to count the cost before they undertook an action so that it wouldn't be started in vain. So as much as you can, you want to make sure that your congregation sufficiently understands and accepts this biblical teaching. So friend, and I'm speaking here especially to the senior pastors, your goal is not immediate compliance according to your own conscience's best understanding of the word, followed by an explosion. Your goal is a congregation being reformed by the word of God. You want them going in the right direction, and that requires patience in shepherding, which brings me to my third and last point. And I'm just going to touch on this stuff because the whole conference is this, but I I wanted to set it like this at the very beginning. This is a little bit of how I think you can shepherd your church toward a practice of corrective church discipline. First, encourage humility. Encourage humility. 
help people see they may be mistaken about their own spiritual state. Uh, you and I, are, I am not the world expert on me. Paul says again and again by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do not be deceived. He instructs us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. Friends, we, we, we can deceive ourselves about ourselves. We want to help people see this. And consider the example of the man in 1 Corinthians 5, as well as Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians more broadly in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 to examine themselves and see if they be in the faith. Paul charges us to figure that out. Do your church members understand they're supposed to help each other do that? That that is part of their role as members of your local church? A local church in that sense is like an assurance of salvation cooperative. We are here to make sure that we are not self-deceived when we think we're saved. Number two, make sure that your congregation has a biblical understanding of church membership. People don't understand discipline because they don't understand membership. Membership is a congregational relationship. It's not created, sustained, or ended merely by an act of an individual. An individual cannot continue in membership or leave the membership of the congregation without the congregation's explicit or implicit approval. Let me demonstrate this. Church of the interns, come on up here. Uh, James, put up your hand. James is the pastor of the Church of the Interns. So Church of the Interns right here. Now there is a wanderer coming along named Lyle. So Lyle comes up, and Lyle, you all can congregate more, you don't have to get in the lineup, you can just congregate more. Lyle wants to join the Church of the, well you don't have to be a huddle, I mean, you know. (laughs) Lyle wants to join the Church of the Interns. Now. Can Lyle do that on his own? So, so guys, your church, now Lyle, just try to join, but nobody take his hand. Yeah, Lyle can't do it on his own. On the other hand, it's not just a matter of the congregation wanting Lyle to join. If Lyle isn't interested, so congregation, you want him to join, but Lyle's not interested. Act that out. Yeah, see, that doesn't work either. Okay, so what has to happen is there's a mutual consent. So Lyle has to want to join, and the congregation has to want to take him. So that's what membership is right there. Now watch this. For membership to end normally, healthily, can Lyle just decide to leave? Let's see what happens. So Lyle, you can turn loose, but the church hasn't turned loose because it it wasn't just Lyle who made the decision in the first place. And normally it's not just the pastor, it's not just the church turning loose, so you turn loose, with Lyle still holding on. Let's say Lyle still wants to be a member. It's normally not that unless it's church discipline, unless he's being excluded by an act of discipline. 99 times out of 100, the normal way to do it is it's mutual consent to join and it's mutual consent to part. Okay? Does that make sense? Thanks, guys. Please be seated. So that's church membership illustrated. So just like an individual can't continue in membership or leave the membership of a particular congregation without that congregation's explicit or implicit approval except by death, Friends, I know that's a mouthful, but what I'm saying is that it's a church's business to decide who its members are. A person, by turning up themselves, can't, they don't have the unilateral power just to make themselves a member of the church. And a member, by the same token, can't just leave when they're in unrepentant sin. It's the congregation's responsibility they've taken when they take them into membership to love them. What you have to do is present that vision of membership positively. If that membership of 
if that vision of membership is not there, church discipline makes no sense. You guys really don't know what's going on in each other's life in your church, but then all of a sudden Bob's in adultery and now you're in his business. No, friends, you get in each other's business long before Bob's ever in adultery. You're just in each other's business because you love the Lord and you love each other. And that's just what Christians are like. The, the fruit of the Spirit you can't see if you're alone on a desert island, right? The fruit of the Spirit presumes you're around other people. So when you're in that committed relationship in a local church, you're normally helping each other grow in Christ. That's the context in which it would begin to become kind of weird if you didn't talk to each other about some serious unrepentant sin. But you have to present that vision for membership positively first. Understand what the Bible teaches about church membership. Make sure you've familiarized yourself with several crucial points and passages that you can remind members of when they ask. Look for opportunities in your sermons to teach on the distinction between the church and the world and how that distinction is crucial for the nature of the church. We won't have any missionaries if we don't understand the church is different than the world. We've got nothing to tell them about, nothing to invite them into. Help your congregation to assemble that kind of picture of God's plan for His church so that the outlines of discipline begin to become conspicuous that you're not doing them in practice. So people begin to wonder, why are we doing this? And remember that members have to understand membership and discipline because members are the ones who have to carry it out. It's not just the elders, not just the pastor. So that's number two, make sure your congregation has a biblical understanding of church membership. Number three, pray that God would help you to model ministry to other Christians in your church by your public teaching, by your private work with families and individuals, work toward creating a culture of discipling and accountability in your church, where Christians understand that a basic part of their following Jesus is to help other people follow Jesus. I often say Christianity is personal, but it's never private. Christianity is personal, yes, but it's never private. It involves other people. If you tell me you're following Jesus and you're not helping other people to follow Jesus by evangelizing or discipling, I just don't know what you mean when you say you're following Jesus. I'm not saying you're not following Jesus, I'm just saying I don't know what you mean by claiming to follow Jesus if you're not helping other people follow Jesus. Help them understand the special responsibilities they have toward other members of their particular congregation. Teach them that the Christian life is personal but not private. That's number three, pray for those things. Number four, prepare your congregation's written constitution and covenant. Get some general legal advice. Begin teaching pre-membership classes in which members are taught this stuff about membership and discipline explicitly so that they, when they join the church, they, everybody knows they've been taught and they're agreeing to this. And fifth and finally, in your pulpit ministry, never tire of teaching what a Christian is. Regularly define the gospel and true conversion. Explicitly teach that a church is intended to be composed of repenting sinners who are trusting in Christ alone and who give credible professions of faith. Pray that you would be centered on the gospel. Resolve that with God's help you will slowly but steadily lead your congregation to change. So pray that rather than being a church where it's strange to ask people how they're doing spiritually, you would become a church where it begin to seem strange if somebody didn't ask you about your life. So you know your congregation is ready to practice church discipline. When your leaders understand it and agree with it and perceive its importance, mature leadership shared among several elders, I think, is most consistent with Scripture, very helpful for leading a church through potentially volatile discussions. Your congregation is united in understanding that such discipline is biblical. When your membership consists largely of people who are actually there to hear your sermons, 
and when a particularly clear case comes along in which your members would fairly unitedly perceive that excommunication is the correct action. For example, excommunication for adultery is unrepentant adultery is more likely to yield agreement among your membership than excommunication for non-attendance. So you can do that, but I think that's going to be a harder sell if your congregation has not been practicing corrective church discipline. So friends, though, though you, you may have once thought the idea of church discipline is ridiculous, I pray that God will help you to lead your congregation to see that it is a loving, provocative, attractive, distinct, respectful, gracious act of obedience among your members, that it's an act of mercy, that it helps to build a church that brings glory to God. But remember, if you become convinced for the first time at this conference that the Bible teaches church discipline, your first step may be to begin by not practicing church discipline so that soon in a few months or years, you can. So that's it. What discipline is, why you shouldn't do it, when you should. There's a lot more content to come, uh, but let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to give careful attention to your word. Lord, where our attention right now and our understanding is sketchy, we pray that you would fill this out. Lord, help us to understand your words in Matthew 18. Help us to understand 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 and, and, and Titus and Hebrews and 1 Peter and Lord, all the, the riches of your word. Be teaching us for the sake of the congregations represented here in this room. Oh God, get glory to yourself through this time together we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.